The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Joshua 6:22-25. Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, "Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there, and all who are with her, just as you swore to her." So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she still lives in Israel today. This is the word of the Lord. Are you familiar with the name Chuck Colson? He became famous in the 60s and 70s as the hatchet man for President Richard Nixon. Now, those who were involved in politics at the time saw him both as an effective and intelligent strategist But he was more widely known because he was ruthless in accomplishing his political goals. In fact, there was this memo that was leaked, but it went out to his campaign staff in 1972, and he said that he would walk over my grandmother to get Nixon elected president. He was connected to the Watergate scandal, and eventually he was charged with obstruction of justice for some different illegal activities His life at that point began to sort of crash around him. In the midst of this personal crisis, he reached out to a Christian friend, went over to his house one night, and the friend told him how he became a Christian and read to him a section from the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He left the friend's house, got in his car to drive home, and here's what he said happened next in his own words. But when I got in the car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy, I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus, and he came into my life. Now, you can probably imagine the amount of skepticism that, that the media evidenced when they heard about Colson's conversion to Christianity. Well, he ignored the advice to his lawyers, and he pled guilty to the charges. He was sentenced to seven months in prison, and he said his confession was a a price I had to pay to complete the shedding of my old life and to be free to live the new. Those who doubted his his conversion uh, soon saw the genuineness of his faith because he devoted his life to serving those in prison. In 1976, not long after getting out of prison, he founded the Prison Fellowship, a nonprofit that serves prisoners former prisoners and their families. And listen to this. Just two years ago, in one year, Prison Fellowship was able to help more than 255,000 prisoners, not only in the U.S., but in 110 different countries. In 2008, Colson was awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal, and then after his death, Congress created the Charles Colson Task Force on Federal Corrections to try to develop better solutions to the prison system problems. Okay, what's the point of sharing this story with you? Something happened to Charles Coulson that not only changed his life, but it transformed his legacy. The grace of God in Jesus Christ transformed Coulson from a belligerent political bully to a compassionate servant of prisoners. I this week read his obituary um, from a number of years ago on the Washington Post. And the first number of paragraphs, the first section was all about his crimes and his jail time. 
But his legacy is not the mistakes he made which sent him to prison. His legacy is the millions of lives that have been transformed by loving sacrifice. See, the grace of God is not only powerful enough to change a person's life, it's powerful enough to change their legacy. This morning, we're going to study the life of a woman named Rahab and see how grace transformed her legacy. As we do, I want to ask you to ask a couple questions. And just think about them as we study this. First, like, what is your legacy? What is your legacy? And then with it, what do you want your legacy to be? We'll read through Rahab's story here in Joshua chapter 2 and then flip to the New Testament to see her legacy. Now, to understand Rahab's story, we've, we've got to fill in a few gaps between what we studied last week with Judah and Rahab's uh, of the events in her life. So when we left off last week, the nation of Israel was in its infancy. So you had Abraham's grandson, Jacob, also named Israel, who had relocated with, with all, of his, all of his children and children's children, his 12 sons, and eventually the tribes that would come from them to Egypt. And there they were in Egypt for 400 years, and they had babies, and their babies had babies, and so on. And for 400 years, this, this people began to grow into a, a substantial um, a nation. Over time, Abraham's descendants, who were called the Hebrews, they became slaves to the Egyptians. And the treatment at the hands of the Egyptians kept getting worse and worse to the point where the Hebrews cried out to God to save them, to deliver them. I'm sure they looked at these promises God had made to Abraham and said, God, when will this happen? Please spare us, deliver us from what we're experiencing. God heard their cries. He sends Moses to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh to let the people go, let them go to the land that he was going to give them. Pharaoh refused, and so God punished him until finally Pharaoh relented. Moses and the Hebrews went. Sadly, the, the generation of Hebrews who left with Moses, when they made it to the land God was going to give them, they disobeyed and they died there and sort of in the wilderness after 40 years. A generation arose after them. Moses died with him. Joshua was appointed as leader. And that's really where the book of Joshua begins. You have this, this nation, Israel, the Hebrews, they're poised sort of on the land. They're about to enter this, this land God had promised to give them under the leadership of Joshua. But standing in front of them is this mammoth obstacle, which is a, a city called Jericho, whose walls are big, its people are large, its army is strong. This was fear of this city, which actually caused the rebellion of the previous generation. So Joshua, the leader of the Hebrews, he sends two spies into the city to check it out. And it's at that point that Rahab enters the picture. So in verses 1 through 7, we see that Rahab, first she protects the spies. Look at verse 1. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay, so there's an obvious question from Genesis, or from chapter, verse 1 here. Why did the spies go to the house of a prostitute? Right? If we sent some elders on a missions trip, and we found out that they had spent the night in a brothel, like we would be shocked and alarmed. That would be severely problematic. Right? So why did the spies stay with Rahab? Well, one reason is because of the location. In verse 15, it says that Rahab lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. And so it was not only easily accessible, but if you're a spy, you're also thinking about how can I escape? So the location. The second reason is her occupation. Men regularly came and went from Rahab's house. In fact, it wouldn't have been unusual to see men with sort of covered faces slide discreetly in the front door at nighttime. 
So the, the spies assumed it would be easier to blend in there, and she was also more likely to accept payment to keep their presence a secret. Like, you don't get into this line of business if you have a lot of money or if you have a lot of influence, and so she is very likely to keep her mouth shut if they pay her. Now, one more reason is obvious to us as Bible readers, right? God sent them to Rahab's house because he was going to use their presence to rescue her. He was giving her an opportunity to respond in faith. It's interesting that when we see these, what we might call incidental details in the Bible, in these stories, that we understand, right, that God is behind them. We know that what appears to be random never is. That God is at work in even the tiniest details, like sending them to Rahab's house. But we really struggle to see them that way in our own lives. Like when something interrupts our day or our plans. When something unwanted or unforeseen happens. When nothing goes according to how we wanted it to go. Do we see the hand of God at work? I mean, I'm going to be honest. I really struggle to see God's hand at work in this sort of small coincidences or frustrating inconveniences of my day. Okay, and this is why we have each other. Let's, let's commit as we pray for each other. Maybe as you pray through the directory or you pray for your small group or you pray just for people in the congregation. Pray this, that we will see God as sovereign over the small details, the seemingly random events that happen throughout the day. That God will give us and give each other eyes to see him at work. Then when we meet together over lunch or coffee, when we meet in our small groups and in our discipleship groups, we need to remind each other that nothing happens by chance. So when we come frustrated about that thing that went wrong or we just couldn't believe that this took place, we remind each other with love and kindness that God is at work behind it. That just as God brought those spies into Rahab's house for a purpose, God brings people into our lives for a purpose. We need faith and we need encouragement from each other to see God at work in the nine to five of life in Wake County. Well, the king of Jericho, verse two, he hears about the spies. And so he tells Rahab in verse three, turn them over to the authorities. And what Rahab does next is surprising. Verse four, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. So Rahab hides the spies and sends the officials on a wild goose chase. Like, no one would have expected this. Rahab is neither a Hebrew nor is she holy. Why would she risk her life, which is what she's doing? She's risking her life. Why would she risk her life to save the life of a couple Hebrew men? Like, she even knows why they came, we learn. Like, she knows they are there to defeat Jericho. But she still helps them. A lot of people focus here on how Rahab protected them by deceiving the king more than the fact that she risked her life to protect them. Like they ask, was it right for Rahab to lie to the king? And honestly, the the text doesn't comment on that question. We do see that there are times in Scripture when saints have felt compelled to deceive evil authorities in order to protect innocent lives. 
Like in Exodus chapter 1, for instance, the Hebrew midwives, they're told by Pharaoh, you need to kill. You need to kill any Hebrew baby boys that come. Most likely receive the baby, probably say it was stillborn, and actually dispose of it. And the Hebrew wives, the midwives say, it says they fear God, and so they refuse to do it. They instead, they go, they, they make sure the babies are born safely. And then when Pharaoh confronts them, or I'm sure Pharaoh's messengers, here's what they tell them. They say, well, those Hebrew women, they have the babies so quick that by the time we get there, they're already born. So is it acceptable to deceive evil authorities to protect innocent lives? The Bible doesn't directly answer that question. But it does give us a few examples where saints felt compelled to do so. And so Rahab is one who risked her life to protect these Hebrew spies. Here's the second thing we see in Rahab's story is Rahab asked for mercy. Now we find out a reason for protecting the spies in verses 8 through 13. She has heard all about this God of Israel, what he's done to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Look at verse 8. Before the men fell asleep, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. What remarkable faith is evident in Rahab's statement? Three times she mentions the God of Israel by name. So we, we see that in our text in the small capital letters that you use for Lord. This isn't sort of a generic statement about a God, but she knows the name of Israel's God. She's referring specifically to Israel's God, how he saved his people from, from Pharaoh's army. And she knows this. She's confident of this, that he is going to give his people victory over Jericho. And most of all, she recognizes this in verse 11, that the God of Israel is the God over heaven, above, and on earth below. So she lives in a place where there are gods. There are all kinds of gods, gods of wood and stone. People have altars and idols set up around them. There are temples. And she says, I know nothing here. None of these gods can do anything with that God. That God is God over them all. So she recognizes God's sovereign rule over everything. She asks for mercy. In many ways, Rahab is the first Gentile convert. And she becomes a model for all Gentiles that God saves those who confess him as Lord and ask him for mercy. Like, aren't we thankful that God saves Gentiles? Like, that his saving work is not confined to one nation? It is stories like Rahab's that motivate us to take the gospel to all nations. This is why Jesse and Heather are heading to the Balkans to join Tyler and Laura there, because God saves all who submit to him as Lord and ask him for mercy. Do you think about those in other places who need God's mercy? It's easy for us to get really focused on our own lives, the self-imposed craziness of our schedules, and forget there are people like Rahab in cities all around the world. People who are overlooked. People who are trapped in cycles of sin and self-destruction. People longing for a way out. People who've heard rumors about God, but people waiting for someone who knows God to show up at their door. 
Rahab makes a bold request in verse 12. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The word kindness is used throughout the Bible to talk about the faithful love of God for his people. So what Rahab is doing is she's asking the spies to make a loving commitment to her and her family. She knows that only the God of Israel is able to spare them from death. And so she asks the spies to make her a promise of mercy. The the spies do. But they do it on one condition, verse 13, that she must keep her word. She must not tell the authorities about them. If she will demonstrate allegiance to God and his people, they will make sure she and her family are spared. The third thing we see in Rahab's story is that she acts in faith. Since her house is built into the wall of the city, she's able to let the spies climb down a rope out the window into the hills. And it says in verse 15 and 16, they hide out there for three days before they make it safely back to their people. Before they leave, leave, though, they give Rahab instructions for when they return with the Israelite army. Verse 17, the men said to her, We'll be free from this oath you made us swear, unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, all your father's family into your house. Now, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault, and we'll be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house shall be, should be harmed, his death will be our fault. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. So the instructions the spies give her are simple, but they are deeply symbolic. Like all she's got to do, this is simple, right, is hang the scarlet rope over the window of her house. These spies, they don't know at this point how God is going to deliver Jericho into their hands. Here's what they probably assume, that it's going to happen through some sort of military battle, because so far that's what God has done. The history of Israel, there are these military battles over the inhabitants of the land as God brings them into the land he's prepared for them. And so they're thinking there's this distinct color of rope hanging over her window. It's an unmistakable sign to the soldiers that her house, the inhabitants inside, are to be spared. But we shouldn't miss the symbolism. Forty years earlier, the Hebrews are living in Egypt, and God brings a series of plagues on the Egyptians. Because Pharaoh refuses to let these people go, God brings these plagues. But the, the final plague, in the final plague, it's the death of all firstborn children. That God is sending this avenging angel that will kill the firstborn in every family because of the, the leader's rebellion. And the only way a family that's living in the land is going to be spared from this And this is what the Hebrews were told to do, is they killed a lamb, and they took the lamb's blood, and they painted the scarlet blood on the doorposts of their their house. And it says, if the doorway is marked in red, the angel will pass over the house. Rahab's scarlet cord here is a reenactment of the Passover. She is marking her house with red, so God's judgment will pass over her and her family. And this symbolism does two things. First, it demonstrates... Rahab's allegiance is not to a king or a country, but to the God of heaven and earth. Rahab, by her actions, is identifying herself as belonging to God. And this reminds us that any allegiance to a country is secondary to our allegiance to God. We are Christians before we're Americans. Now, this is easy for us to agree to when we're talking about a a wicked nation like Jericho. 
But this same thing is true for every citizen of every nation. Our primary allegiance is not to a flag, but to the throne. It's not to a political leader, but to our sovereign creator. Rahab refuses the request of the king of Jericho in order to follow the orders of the king of heaven. But second, this act points us ahead to Jesus Christ as the only one who is able to save us from death and destruction. You see, the Passover in Israel was a symbolic picture of the perfect Lamb of God who would offer his life so that God's judgment would pass over God's people. That the only sufficient substitute for us is Jesus Christ who died in our place and his blood marks us out as safe from judgment. Rahab's actions and their similarity to the Passover show us that God's grace in Jesus Think about this. This is wonderful. God's grace in Jesus is able to save anyone, regardless of ethnicity, gender, class, occupation. God's grace is able to save anyone. You see, some might have thought after the Passover that God's grace was only for a few select people. And this inclusion of Rahab says, no, it's for everyone. And that means, friend, that God is able to save you, that his grace is for you Like Rahab, all you must do is turn from a lifestyle of rebellion against God, swear allegiance to Him, and put your faith in His saving work. Now, if you've been with us at Redeemer for any length of time, it shouldn't surprise you that we believe this story points us ahead to Jesus. Because we understand that all of Scripture is about God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Everything. Like from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is pointing us to Jesus. Like this idea, though, didn't originate with us. It's not unique to us. It's how Jesus taught his disciples to interpret the Bible. He opened up the scriptures to him, we're told, and he says, let me show you how all of it, everything Moses wrote and David and the Psalms and the prophets points ahead to me. To miss how it points to Jesus is not only to miss the point, but it's to miss out on the life that only comes through him. So Rahab, she's told to do this, to mark out this symbolic act And how does she respond? I love what she says, verse 21. Let it be as you say. Absolutely. I'm going to do it. No doubt. She replied. She sent them away. And I love this. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Like she didn't waste any time. We're supposed to see this. That the faith of Rahab, it's in stark contrast to the unbelief of that previous generation of Israelites Think about this. Those who had seen God work through the plagues in Egypt, those who had experienced the Red Sea salvation of God, those who had seen God provide manna in the wilderness, those who had seen God do all those things, they did not think that God was going to deliver Jericho into their hands. They died in unbelief. And here is Rahab, a citizen of Jericho, who says, I know that God is going to give you this city. She acts in faith. Fourth, God saves Rahab. So we read these verses earlier, but in chapter 6, God delivers Jericho to the hands of the Hebrews without, without a single sword being drawn or arrow being fired. The walls of the city fall down, but you can just picture that Rahab and her family's home, it stands firm. Joshua commands the army to burn the city, but to bring out Rahab's family. He says in Joshua 6, verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her. 
because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she still lives in Israel today. Now, I love that final phrase. She still lives in Israel today. Just so you know, that's not talking about today. Like, she's dead. But she still lives in Israel today. Here's what I love about this, is that when, when she made this decision, she not only became a part of the people of God, but God took care of her. I mean, think about what happened in the fall of Jericho. She was spared, but her home, her livelihood, her neighbors, all that she had known disappeared in the rubble. How would she survive? And here's the answer. God took care of her. I mean, the God who saved her, do you really think he's not going to care for her? The God who protected her from death and judgment, is he not going to provide for her? I mean, brothers and sisters, the moment she committed herself to God, her future was secure, just as yours is, if you belong to him. So this is Rahab's story. Now let's look at Rahab's legacy. Rahab is mentioned by name three times in the New Testament. The first is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. This is why we're studying our story today as we study this genealogy and just some of these pictures, glimpses of grace in the middle of it. And that's shocking, right? That, that here's the line of Jesus, God's Son, the Messiah, what all of human history has been looking towards. And you have, she's included in it, and she's included by name. Like, she could have been included and not even been included by name, but here she is, listed here. A Canaanite prostitute in the line of the Messiah. It says in Matthew 1, verse 5, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. The next mention of Rahab is in the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews is written to encourage Christians to endure in the faith. Like, don't grow weary, don't give up, don't stop. Just continue to trust God, even if you feel like you're in the wilderness, even if you feel like, like everything's against you, keep trusting God. So early in the book, the author, he uses a negative example to show those who who give up, who don't persevere in the faith, who don't endure. And the negative example are those Israelites who died just outside of Jericho, the ones, that generation, who, who in unbelief just refused to do what God said. That's the negative example. But as he goes in the book of Hebrews, he comes to this chapter filled with positive examples, Hebrews 11. And so closer to, like, to the end of this book, he's like, here are all these examples of enduring faith. And guess who's listed there? Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish those who disobeyed. Now, the third and final mention is in the letter from James, the brother of Jesus. So he's writing to Christians to encourage them to demonstrate their faith through works. So he famously says that faith without works or faith without works that accompany it, that demonstrate it, is dead. In other words, it's not real faith if it doesn't actually do anything. And so he gives two examples of faith from the Old Testament. And the first one is the one that, like, if there was a quiz in Sunday school, everyone would get it right. Who's the first example of faith in the Old Testament? Every Jewish kid would say Abraham. Right? I mean, he's the father of the nation. That's the first example. And then he's like, who do you think the second one? In all the Old Testament, who is the second example of enduring faith? I bet a lot of, lot of wrong answers before you get to Rahab. But he chooses Rahab, James 2, verse 25, he says in the same way. Think about that. He just has detailed the life of Abraham. And he's like, now, in the very same way. 
the father of the nation, like the sort of prototypical person of faith. And he says it about Rahab, like, yeah, just like, just like him. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works? Understand that. He makes a point earlier, faith justifies by works, demonstrate it in receiving the messengers and sending them out a different route. So what is Rahab's legacy? Now, it's easy for us to think about her occupation, that she was a prostitute. But that's not her legacy. Her legacy is this woman of faith in God's promise of grace. God's grace, not your sin or suffering, defines your legacy. God's grace. You see, the word grace is not used in Joshua 2, but we see it everywhere because it was God's grace which brought this transformation to Rahab. Let me ask you this question. I mean, I know you have a bunch of military strategists in here. Why did Joshua send spies to Jericho? Did Joshua not know what Jericho was like? Now, if you're familiar with the biblical story, Joshua was actually sent as a spy into Jericho in Israel's first trip to there before the people rebelled. So Joshua, he knows what Jericho is. He's literally been there himself. He's seen this. He has has laid eyes on it. Like Joshua doesn't need any information. In fact, they don't end up fighting the city. So nothing of value is gained by the spies going there. So why does he enter the city? Because God was going to save Rahab. All of it was about saving Rahab. But here's the thing, they didn't realize it. Joshua didn't know that. The spies didn't realize it. So put yourself in the, in the sort of the, the position of the spies. Like this is a dangerous and fearful thing. If you get caught, what's going to happen to you? I mean, they're not going to read your, your Miranda rights. Like that's not how it works in Jericho. You're going to disappear and you're never being seen again. And you're, you're going to suffer slowly at the hands of this people. And, and this almost happens, right? Because the king hears about them. Like, and so the spies, they suffer this fear and anxiety, this uncertainty, all of this stuff. Why? Nothing they bring back is of value. Here's why. Because God was going to save Rahab. Like the only thing accomplished by the spies was giving Rahab an opportunity to demonstrate faith and receive the promise. Now what about this question? Why did the authorities hear about the spy's arrival? I mean, I've never been a spy, but I'm pretty sure that's a bad job. Like, you're not supposed to be found out. Hence, spying. These are... So did Joshua pick two, like, bad spies? Like, hey, yeah, these guys aren't very good. They're going to make a lot of noise, but I like them. No, clearly, he, he doesn't do that. He's a great military leader. He picks two guys. And God, couldn't God have kept their, their location, their identity, everything a secret? I mean, we know in the Old Testament, God blinds people. He does all of these things. Couldn't he have done that? Why doesn't he do it? Why does God let the king hear about it? One answer. Because this is an opportunity for Rahab to demonstrate faith in God by, by hiding the spies. What about this question? Why is the account of Rahab in the Bible at all? So if you're reading through Joshua, it interrupts this larger account of, of God bringing his people in the land, delivering Jericho to them, like providing this land, it interrupts this. In fact, you could say it's, it's not of any strategic importance. Nothing really happens nationally because of Rahab. Why is it in here at all? And here's why. Everything in this story is to convince us that God is gracious. 
And we need this. None of us, none of us see God's grace as enough. And there's not a person sitting here who has an appropriate view of God's grace. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, we struggle with not believing God's grace is as gracious and big and full and rich and beautiful and wonderful as it is. And so we need these stories so that our small, dim view of God's grace grows bigger and clearer. I mean, I want you to see what happens here. Here's Rahab. I mean, she's got nothing. And she knows she, has no, she hasn't had a future for a long time, likely. That's why she's in this occupation. She's got no future because she knows this, this home's about to be destroyed. And here's what she does. She simply asks God for kindness. And what does God do? He's kind to her. God's kind to her. And so God wants us to see his kindness to all people, even the most unlikely ones. Like this wasn't a king, but a commoner. Not a prince, but a prostitute who experienced the kindness of God. God continues to assure us That he cares about those society has discarded. He cares about the Tamars and the Rahabs. Do we? Who are the Rahabs in Fuquay Varina? Who might God be sending us to meet? Whose house do we need to enter with a message of salvation in Jesus Christ? Like brothers and sisters, these stories should certainly make us grateful that God is kind to us sinners, but they should also compel us to share his love with those who desperately need to know that the Lord of heaven and earth sees them. He loves them, and he will show them kindness. Now, one of my heroes is John Newton, a long-dead British pastor I mention him a lot because I've learned a lot from his life and ministry, even though he died hundreds of years ago. So if you know anything about John Newton's life, if you read anything about it, in the first paragraph of his story, you will always see this, that he served as the captain of a slave ship before he became a Christian. So for many years, he was a participant in the evils of the African slave trade. He literally made money off kidnapping Africans from their homes, transporting them across the sea, and selling them as property. And and if you read any story, like this is usually where it starts. John Newton, and this is what it is. But let me ask you, is that Newton's legacy? I don't think so. I think his legacy is best summed up by some words he wrote. Words that most of us know by heart. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, for a few thousand years, Rahab's name has almost always been followed by the words, the harlot or the prostitute. And her sin is an undeniable part of her story, but it is not her legacy. Her legacy is the amazing grace of God that found her when she was lost that healed her of her blindness and saved her from destruction. And brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. 
your worst sin and your most intense suffering are part of your story. They are an undeniable part of your story. But they do not define you, and they are not your legacy. So like Charles Colson, like John Newton, like Rahab, like so many others, your legacy as a Christian is not in what you accomplish or what you fail to accomplish. Your legacy is God's grace in Jesus Christ. So we should be grateful this Advent season that God's grace is not only powerful enough to transform your life, it's powerful enough to establish a legacy of faith. Father, help us to believe and see your grace for what it is. Like you are so gracious to us. You are so gracious to to us who deserve nothing. We deserve nothing at all. Like Tamar and like Rahab, Lord, your grace alone is sufficient. There's, There's nothing we need apart from that. Help us to see it. I pray too in this Advent season that you will help us to, you help us to have eyes too to see those around us who are desperate to hear about your grace. Give us eyes to see in the seemingly incidental details of our lives and maybe even in the the things that we want to groan and complain about, opportunities to share the grace of God in Christ Jesus with those who desperately need it. We know there are those around us who are begging for kindness, and we have the opportunity to show them the kindness of Jesus Christ. So may we be so enamored and convinced of your grace to us, your kindness to us, that it flows out of us and those around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.